Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the... I think it's a bit too early for hot jazz. Maybe Brass warm band. jazz. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. Band. Phil Graves. And we're here once again to talk about cinema. This episode is part two of our ongoing series, 100 Years Ago. Mm-hmm. And this is the one I've definitely been looking forward to doing the most. We're talking about primarily about German cinema, Weimar cinema. And we're also going to have a look at Austrian and Czechoslovakian cinema, post-Habsburg cinema. Yeah, exactly. Strictly continental this time though and a fascinating period in film history and so many amazing films lots of legendary figures in the history of film people like fritz lang murnau lubitsch you know everything that's happening is basically in the shadow of the cabinet of dr category that had been made like a couple of years before which is a great film if you haven't come across it before yeah. i'd really recommend it yeah i think for most people though if you say old german film or whatever it's that sort of aesthetic and mood um which will come to mind like twisted painted backgrounds heavy makeup like sort of gothic scenario madness cities like frame narratives and twists yeah yeah um men wearing eye makeup (laughs) yeah there's loads of debates about this because everyone claims to have worked on it right yeah well for sure (laughs) but even just like in terms of did this like start expressionism so pretty banal or facile question you know tell that to my lecturers it's been (laughs) well it's gestured towards as like an aesthetic sure from like 1913 or whatever um but it's sort of the cabinet of dr i certainly represents like a sort of crystallization of film expressionism and yeah we see major players involved in that the co-scenarist carl mayer um, the producer, Eric Palmer. Herman Warm, the production designer. But not really Robert Wine, the director, who is a bit of a non-entity in the history of German cinema, despite making one of the most important films. Yeah, that's definitely right. And I guess that's a reason why, um, looking at this sort of period in film history, uh, I guess belies like an auteurist reading to a certain extent, even though we're still going to be being like, oh, so now we're going to talk about two films by F.W. Murnau. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it's more about the milieu, I guess. Yeah, we'd have no, like, Bela Lugosi without that either, or, or Boris Karloff or anything, because we're going to talk about films today that feature Conrad Veidt in a very similar role as the one he played Cesar in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, for example. We're going to be talking about From Caligari to Hitler a lot today by Siegfried Krakauer. And uh, The Haunted Screen by Lottie Eisner. I guess those two were, like, the foundational texts about it. And they really imbue these films with a sort of uh, teleology, um, you know, towards fascism. They read them backwards, which is interesting, but it's not really the purpose today. No, I can't tell if it was, if it would have been a really easy book to write or a really hard book to write. Because some of it, when you're reading it, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I sort of see what you're saying with this. And then other ones, it's like very apparent yeah authoritarian figures exactly stuff like that but yeah it is a bit like subconscious death drive <laughs> yeah for sure it's the germans you know the <laughs> yeah it's going to be a fun one some amazing films to get into I, I feel like we need to do a sort of like gcse history treaty of versailles style stab in the back myth um Spartacist <laughs> uprising the only socialist uprising in germany yeah we're not going to linger too much on this because why did germany hate the treaty of versailles i feel like i had this lesson <laughs> about five times i think it's about the only thing i ever learned in history but i was drilled into me oh, 
treat you as a dick tat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, it's really not necessary to get into. What is maybe worth saying is that the birth of the studio system in Germany, even though there'd been sort of entrepreneurs and like people going towards a sort of vertically integrated like film business structure, mm. having like cinema chains and produ- production managed by like you know one company which is the sort of essence of the studio system maybe it's sort of dismantled with home media uh, but anyway that's it's, so just, it's just as big of a thing in europe as it was in america like gaumont and pathé yeah. those were most of the cinemas in the uk mm. but the point is during the first world war the germans had to sort of rethink their film industry and there was a big merger of extant film companies Including Nordisk. Yeah, one of the biggest um, production companies at the time. To sort of centralise it, uh, I don't know, it's just so... I just want to talk about the movies, but it's like, it's it's important to to outline a little bit. We do actually have a lot to thank the Deutsche Bank for, (laughs) turns out. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and um, yeah, various other, you know, industrial interests in the Ruhr and stuff like that. But yeah, we're looking at a sort of centralised studio system with lots of uh you know creatives like floating around it it's a really interesting time we're gonna meet lots of interesting figures and talk about some banging films we sure are i think one sort of central thing for me is that like these are the films even more so than anything going on in america or france or stuff that we've already talked about from 1921 like the deluke film production design is such a huge element to a lot of these films germany thanks to Max Reinhardt, first mentioned, well, definitely won't be the last. They were really breaking new ground in what they could do on the stage and what they could express through stage design. And all of the people that were involved in the film industry that we're going to talk about today had some sort of relationship to the stage as well. Definitely. Did a lot of uh, non-excellent work. Yeah, I think um, this is a period where film becomes sort of legitimised as an art form. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is down to its relationship with the theatre and yeah, yeah, people like set designers. We're going to talk about, for example, some like sort of abstract and animated films. Um, Lottie Reiniger, uh, the paper uh, animator, famous for uh, The Adventures of Prince, Prince Ahmed. Ahmed yeah. She started out in Reinhardt's theatres, like, you know, doing like sets. And where did she end up? She wasn't a Nazi. She wasn't a Nazi? I don't think so. But yeah, okay, that does <laughs> point towards a game, I suppose, we're going to be playing today. Who's the not? No, it's not. <laughs> In like 24 years, we're going to get down to, you know, the trial. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, you know, these are just like young people that are like trying to make film yeah. artistic yeah. and interesting and entertaining. While at the same time, you know, they've got like pretty hard-nosed producers breathing down yeah. their back, like trying to make it a viable business. If you like auteurism, <laughs> there's no better place to start. So I've got the new issue of Sight and Sound here, freshly arrived. Let me just turn to... Right, that's like two issues ago. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just turn to uh, see what they got cracking. Ooh. Pamela Hutchinson. Pamela Hutchinson, great writer. I'm a huge fan. Shadow of a Century. The world of 1921 was surprisingly close to our own. Here we choose 12 <laughs> films from that year, which capture the flavor of the... T- what the fuck? Only 12? Yeah, come on. Our invoice will be in the post... Sight and Sound magazine. <laughs> they mentioned The Wildcat as one of the 12 films. Do you want to hear what they said about it? Since we're now going to talk about The Wildcat by Ernst Lubitsch to start off this look at 1921 and Weimar cinema. Yeah, we're starting with a banger. It's the sickest film. I just want to keep on watching it over and over again. It 
took my head off. I've watched it like four times this year already. <laughs> the Wild Cat from 1921. <laughs> this wacky pantomime in German, Die Bergkatze, is set in a remote snowbound military camp where a disgraced womanizing lieutenant is posted. He falls foul of a bandit chief's daughter, played with extraordinary cartoon-like slapstick moves by Pola Negri in her pre-diva days. The Jugendstil set designs, the dream sequences, and the vignetting of shots make this one of Ernst Lubitsch's most delightful confections. So Lubitsch had been working in the theatre, and he was an actor. He'd already made quite a few pretty significant films, The Oyster Princess, Anna Boleyn, a.k.a. Deception. Yeah. And he worked under Max Reinhardt as an assistant director, who, um, if you ask Lottie Eisner, is the man responsible for all of this uh, crazy artistic movement. I don't think anyone would necessarily say that The Wildcat is an expressionist film, even though... Um, it's beyond it's beyond expressionist. Yeah, even though, as you said, um, Lubitsch worked with Reinhardt in the theatre, and I would add the costumes and the sets in this film were, were done by Ernst Stern, mm-hmm. um, one of Reinhardt's key sort of art directors in the theatre, set designers, costume designers... Um, and his sketches populate the plates of Lottie Eisner's um, yeah, that's right. book as as much as stills do from um, the Expressionist films that she's citing. And this is a guy that was really instrumental in the Expressionist aesthetic, but here it's more sort of weird, like Rococo Prussian sort of dreamscape. Rococo is the word, I guess. Um, this film was also produced by Paul Davidson of uh, The King of Staten Island and Saturday Night Live fame. You saw him uh, appear in court with Elon Musk <laughs> as Wario just the other day. In fact, um, Produced The Golem, or How He Came Into the World. Which huge, is really, huge really film, cool. yeah. yeah. And that's a trilogy, right? As well. I haven't seen the other two. Well, the director, Paul Wagner, basically um, was like interested in this golem legend. And I don't think it's really a trilogy as much as like he just made three films about the golem. So it's like Dr. Mabusa. Yeah, I guess so. Um, although, that, well, I haven't seen the third one, but the first and second are continuous, aren't they? Yeah, I think Lang said the last thing he ever wanted to do was make another Dr. Mabusa film. And his last film was The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. Yeah. But yeah, Paul Davidson was a really important producer. I think I mentioned him in the introduction alongside um, Eric Pommer, who, who did produce um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But um, yeah, Lubitsch's film career was sort of cultivated by Paul Davidson. As you said, Madame Dubarry and Anne Boleyn had been big successes. Um, Madame Dubarry, also Apollo Negri. And um, those films were released this year, which is, say, 1921 in America, um, and they were big successes. Lubitsch actually moved to America, and I think spent the rest of his career there uh, the year after this, 1922. But yeah, this is an extremely German film, even if it isn't like, what's the word, like... Stimmung, you know, yeah, like, stimmung, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's not like that techno music. It's, not, it's not a moody film, yeah. um, it's... Well, okay, I've got it's a pretty jokes list of references yeah. here. Um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Sure. Um, the Top Family, uh, a Zoltan Fabry film, yeah, which I'd is like also a sort of satire. Of, Coming up um, soon on Film Grace. Yeah, of uh, like sort of First World War era, like sort of, you know, Bismarckian, mm. you know, mustaches and militarism. Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Sure. Um, and The Roundup. Definitely um, the round. It, it feels a lot like the roundup, but it's like it feels like the end of the roundup. It starts like the end of the roundup. <laughs> yeah. So the premise is like, yeah, as uh, as um in the words of Pamela Hutchinson that that you uh, recited, um, yeah, it's just about like a sort of military 
uh, sort of outpost. And yeah. then Polo Negri is um, a member of a sort of bandit group, um, uh, the eponymous wildcat. Um, and yeah, it's just a sort of farce, isn't it? I like guess it's sort of weird of... fairy tale. I want to say fairy tale, but it's not. It's like more of like a sort of allegory because like you know it's very rooted in like the imagery of recent memory like that sort of like militarism definitely it's about the most like handsome soldier in germany like coming to this barracks or whatever yeah and they all look like the nutcracker or whatever but i guess it also feeds into this like specifically german genre of filmmaking which is like the mountain movie something i don't know too much about i bought a copy of the holy mountain starring lenny riefenstahl (sighs) sorry folks because i thought it was the holy mountain by alejandro (laughs) Hodorowski or whatever but they made loads of these like skiing movies and like mm. they just take the cameras up to the mountains I guess they had a lot of uh, mountains to shoot on or... uh, the way they represent I mean we've already mentioned the crazy sets and mm. like the interiors are mad as well like very sort of dreamy I use the word Rococo because it's like warped like bubbly oh, you, just got, you just gotta watch just gotta it, see it. <laughs> like um but yeah as you said the exteriors are mad um and the re- reason I say the roundups because it's just sort of like whitewashed complex in mm. the as you say this like quite barren snowy landscape the way they shoot it though is really interesting with a lot of masking and like the lens is used as a real viewfinder with very specific directional sense I right guess they so, put stencils on it or whatever yeah yeah i think exactly even just like tape or whatever i've never but, seen anything like this because from shot to shot the shape of the frame changes so drastically and they're not like normal shapes you know they're like splatters or like raw shark sort of or like, oh, yeah. And then sometimes they'd have like a two millimeter thin, super wide screen, or like Instagram mode or whatever. That's exactly it. Sometimes it's just in yeah, in portrait, portrait mode, <laughs> and you're like, what? That's. The... But then when you see the next shot, and like, say it's like a group of people side on mm. or crouching. And it's like a sort of diagonal line, and yeah. you're like, oh, okay, like now it has a sort of continuity to this, like shapeliness yeah it's a really interesting technique a really fascinating and enjoyable film definitely Polonegri is great and it's very archetypal or whatever it is a farce it is like a pantomime as Pamela Hutchinson said but the way they shot the film like this I can't find many analogues nah. in the last hundred years of cinema and it, his other films from Berlin don't look like this either I'm just going to say that compared to other filmmakers we're going to come across today like Lang and Murnau who well I guess like Sunrise's one of the greatest films ever made but Lubitsch I was definitely more familiar with his like American work I guess because he emigrated so soon after making this film and became like a central part of the American studio system yeah for sure at that point to be not to be Ninochka classic movies really fun I still don't really know what the Lubitsch touch is but I'm sure it's present in this film (laughs) (laughs) I'm just on what you said like about the aesthetics Mm. again I think this is the fact that this is a period of experimentation and maybe a sort of blending of avant-garde ideas about like the possibility of film and the film mm. image as like a spatial thing. Not necessarily, you know, we're, we're not talking about editing or like the sort of temporality, but like literally just the sort of, you know, the shapes and spaces. Like that could have been something that caught on, you know. Sure. Uh, and we it's did quite a lot of effort. Though, <laughs> sure. Uh, but we do see it a lot in other films, uh, even if it's just like, but more, but more basic. Yeah. It's never that like aggressively used it will be more just like a faces in circle that sort of thing rather than like a a sort of architectural quality to the film like that 
sometimes it's like an arch and it's like you're under the arch looking yeah, yeah, looking yeah. out and stuff like that i think That's especially because this film takes place largely in a military barracks or whatever which is you know the most straightforward like square like brutalist before brutalism thing ever existed but then you've got all these wacky frame shapes yeah it's just mad i think something's worth mentioning compared to oyster princess or anna boleyn this film was a flop it didn't catch on people didn't like his attitude to framing mm. or whatever clearly or maybe they didn't like uh polo negri's role in this because she was a you know she was already one of the biggest film stars in the world or whatever and she plays a great role in this probably a bit against type Compared to Sappho? I reckon so. Yeah, Sappho is another film from 1921 starring Polo Negri. This one is directed by Dmitry Bukovsky, mm-hmm. a Russian emigre director working in the German studios, the vibrant German studio system in that time. This one is also produced by Paul Davidson, who had been behind a bunch of these like Polo Negri vehicles in recent years. It's a lot more like sort of metropolitan drama and for me i don't know i did i didn't really love it it felt sort of dated it's, it's basically she plays like a i guess a sort of show girl um she like works at a club mm. and she's driven a guy mad with love that the english title is mad love i'm gonna cover mad love by future <laughs> for this episode i haven't seen this film though. great yeah um and then uh the guy's brother oh sorry the guy she's driven mad is uh in metropolis all oh, right um he's like the young guy in that anyway come um, back to us in six years <laughs> Um, so the guy's brother is like mad at women for like turning his brother mad but then he falls in love with her and then you know it's good job man yeah (laughs) it felt really dated it felt really dated well it sounds exactly like the blue angel which I can't wait to talk about at some point on this podcast which was like the apotheosis of Ufa filmmaking or whatever in America. That's the first Sternberg and Dietrich film with Emil Jannings. But it's a very similar premise. Yeah. If people were put off by the stylings of the the Wildcat, I can only imagine that this film probably would have catered more to popular taste at the time. It's because it's really square. Yeah, but it also has like madness in the city and stuff like that, and like very like Weimar tropey material. It's not one we're going to dwell on, though. I think we can actually move on straight away. Great. Perhaps to another decidedly non-expressionist film, because this is a historical drama from 1921 by the producer slash writer slash director Richard Oswald, another like sort of early entrepreneur slash sort of impresario of the Weimar, or I guess even like sort of late Wilhelmine Mm. um, period. Mm. But he'd go on to make um, Lucrezia Borgia in 1922, which was like, again, another big historical drama in period. But there are still the trappings of expressionism, as we said in the introduction. With an idea that powerful, or, you know, you can't, it'll be a response to expressionism, even if it's... Well, well I think it's more of a fact. informed by it. Yeah. The same way that films made these days are informed by the Joker. <laughs> I think it's more the fact that it has like Paul Lenny, for example, doing set design. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an interesting film, actually. What's it's it called? Um, sorry, Lady Hamilton. It's about Emma Hamilton, a British uh, painter's model mm-hmm. who ends up as Lord Nelson. What's his name? Horatio Lord Nelson. Admiral Horatio <laughs> Nelson. His like mistress the man on the or stick. whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Not, not that he has one leg, which he did, but he's, <laughs> he's on a big column. Again, Conrad Veidt is in this one. He yeah. plays Nelson. 
uh, without whom we wouldn't have the Joker. Of course. <laughs> so the man who laughs is so seemingly true. the biggest German expressionist film on Letterboxd. So we'll get to that in a few years. That's also Paul Lenny. Yeah. Um, Looks good. I want to watch it. I like Lady Hamilton. It's a bit by the numbers, but I don't know. I like films about artists. Sure. And, you know, she plays painter's model. And I can't remember the guys. So I'm trying to get up my letterbox review. Um, okay, it's George Romney. Familiar with him? No, not nah. at all. I feel like I'd like... We always talk about like Gainsborough and I'd always be like, yeah, I like his paintings. You're like, nah, it's the worst. I can't even look at this shit. Like, yeah, I hate 18th century <laughs> art. Uh, you can quote me on that shit. But yeah, isn't it... I don't know. It's an interesting biographical study of, you know, a powerful woman. Yeah. As a yeah, historical sure. figure. Um, even if her like sort of journey through the film is like marshaled by these like great men of history types like the painter and the ministers yeah. and Nelson himself. But again, it, it has lots of interesting aesthetic qualities shot on location across various European cities. Yeah, they took the they took the production to London, to Venice, to Warsaw or whatever. Yeah. Warsaw? Um, yeah. I don't know. But it, yeah, it's like a fucking veritable grand tour. It has a real, like, uh, Forrest Gump or, like, Zelig quality to it, I think, just because of the fact that... Well, I guess it... I guess it doesn't because it's about a woman who was, like, you know... I don't know where I'm going with this. I'll just say <laughs> it has, cool. like, a... You know what I mean, though, about the, the Forrest Gump quality to it? Or just, well, like, walking I mean. into, she's like, historical being, moments. That's or... exactly what I mean. Like, she's being marshaled through this. Yeah. Even though she's the subject of the film, you know, it's all, like... You know, she's being projected through the story rather yeah. than... It's a sort of illusion of agency. But that's a historical argument in and of itself. It also has other interesting historical arguments, including like a very uh, sort of sarcastic and, for me, I thought it was quite funny, approach to the British sort oh, of taste of piss. That is fucking classic, though. Have you seen, you've seen Napoleon, right? What, the Abelgons? The Abelgons film. We saw it in the cinema. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that has... It's exactly the same thing, yeah. you know, where like... You can imagine the novelty music um, in the archive.org copy that I watched didn't have any music on it, but um, you can it, imagine like some cheesy ass fucking British grenadiers on the tin whistle being played through for the last like third of this yeah, film. But it's like um, English volunteers enter the Royal Navy, the honorable, glorious Royal Navy. Um, and then it's like a press gang scene. Mm. Uh, that's when mm. men were forced, yeah. and, you know, beaten yeah. into joining the Navy. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Um, but, yeah, a, certainly a less film. And Richard Oswald is definitely a neglected director, I think, um, in terms of like how we think about Weimar cinema. Because, yeah, again, it's like the expressionist stuff which dominates the sort of imagination of it. But it's, I think, a noteworthy film. Well, not if you ask Bella Balash who also I failed to bring up when we were talking about Apollo Negri because you posted an insane thirst quote from him talking oh, about Apollo wait, Negri. That was Aspen Nielsen. Oh, it was Aspen <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. But um, uh, He was thirsty for, you know. Yeah, he was, cl- he was like um, David Thompson or whatever who wrote that, according to Science Sound Magazine, the best book on film ever, but also wrote this insane like Nicole Kidman biography, which is just like fanfic vibes. Anyway, Whoa. Bella Balash. <laughs> um Bella Balash talks about this film quite a lot and reproduced a lot of plates from it in um, his theory of the film, which is a fascinating book. I don't know why I was so scared to read it, but it was actually lit. And he centers his analysis of like the close-up in cinema around Lady Hamilton. 
Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I read that a while ago. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, human face chapter. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic chapter. But yeah, I can't, who's the actress in this? Uh, I think it's Leanne Hayde. That's right, isn't it? I yeah. Say. Good performance. The acting in all these films is fucking brilliant, I gotta say. Yeah. Like, that's something we haven't really acknowledged, but, you know, I guess because they were all stage actors and, like, they weren't just, like, part of an entrepreneurial, like, brigade. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> proper actors, you yeah. know. Like. And, you know, you certainly do encounter. Yeah, sorry. Uh, whatever. Uh, I, I'm probably quite happy to leave that one there. Yeah, me too. I'll watch it. I'll come back to it, you know. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, you know, didn't hate it. But there's just so many more mad films that we've got to get to today. Yeah, I, w- I was saying to you off mic um, earlier that I think if we watch this one in like a Peng restoration. Yeah. And, you know, it's only available with Russian intertitles yeah. at the moment. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with Google Lens muddling my way through some of these. Um, You're sick with Google <laughs> Lens. I think what I would say. <laughs> but uh, I think it's but potentially better than we're giving it credit for. But I, yeah. I think it's interesting nonetheless. At least for our London viewers, you get to have a look at London location shot. It looks completely different to London. Yeah, it's now. that sort of tenementy, because almost it's only... like ghetto-y vibes. Yeah, yeah like... definitely. Similar to Broken Blossoms by Griffith, which came out a few years after this, which I think you all should watch, even though it's got a bunch of unpleasant elements and it's made by D.W. Griffith, but it's still sick. But um, yeah, the London shots, at least, were just unbelievable to see. And... Whereas the Wildcat was largely celebrated for its like crowd scenes, and that's what Lubitsch's like German period is like largely marked out for in terms of his like innovations in cinema. If you watch this uh, documentary that I've got about Lubitsch here, Ernst Lubitsch in Berlin from Schonhauser Allee to Hollywood, which is in this Eureka box set, which is great and has amazing footage of like the Spartacist Revolution and all the other revolutions that were going on in Berlin uh, straight after World War One. Just like crazy footage of like. A demonstration around the Brandenburg Gate, or it's not even a demonstration, I guess. They make a, a big deal out of like Lubitsch's crowd scenes, but I think in Lady Hamilton, the fact that it was shot on location, something we'll be coming back to again and again in this episode, I mm. guess. But it was really impressive and interesting, and tied into like Manhattan or something like that. <laughs> still listening to film craze so we're now gonna go from a production by Yufa that went all around the world to two films very much set in one place at one time we are of course talking about der kammerspieler a very distinct genre of films pretty unique to you know weimar germany it literally means chamber play or chamber drama sure which is like a I don't know, if you think of films like, or plays, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or, I don't know, even something like Carnage or something like that. Carnage is a good one, yeah. Uh, the Iceman Cometh. Like, yeah, any sort of like sort of bottle narrative. The Agamemnon know. by Aeschylus, for example, <laughs> or something like that. All the way to The Turin Horse or your favorite, everyone's favorite episode of Breaking Bad, Fly. Exactly. Exactly. So um, not only is the canvas bill um, defined by the self-contained space, but also, you know, a very self-contained drama with like a limited cast of characters. You know, both mm. of these films include extremely destructive sort of trysts between, um, you know, young women and uh, men in uniform. True. <laughs> Bizarre love triangles sometimes. Yeah. 
yeah destructive emotions you know it's this these are the films that it's really easy to look at in the context of like the burgeoning study of psychology for example definitely as is expressionist film but in a different way i guess yeah so the two films we're going to talk about now are the co-directed by paul lenny and leopold yesner backstairs or hinter trek um, from 1921 <laughs> uh, 61 minutes starring and produced by one of the biggest uh sort of women stars of the time henny porton yes and a henny porton film production company and distributed like pretty much all these films by ufa written by carl mayer one of the really the key scenarists and sort of visionaries behind uh, both of these films of course i mean say are written by carl Bear. the other one is um lupu pick a romanian director his sherban or shattered again a very terse self-contained frankly depressing film 1921 58 <laughs> minutes yeah you could watch both of these films in half the time it takes you to watch the Turin horse it would be uh, it would be an excellent <laughs> double bill i've done it twice pretty much yeah definitely let's start with backstairs then paul lenny who co-directed this as i said uh was involved in the set design in um lady hamilton mm -hmm. which does include some sort of like shadowy corridors and interiors but here it's really brought to the next level i think it's actually uh yesner with whom the like settings of this film are actually largely associated mm. the eponymous backstairs are sort of twisted shadow painted sort of uh what's the term staircase no like staff entrance right yeah 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 oh, what's the term yeah. i can't remember there's like a very specific anyway you know. when when a house has a different entrance e for, yeah like, exactly the servants yeah yeah, yeah 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 upstairs but, downstairs yeah is it yeah but the, the architecture of this house is so key to the plot of the film or whatever it's weird because she's a, like a maid yeah. and she's like working like a very, we see flashes of this very like normal in terms of set design, like sort of bourgeois interior in which she's working. But then her environment, the backstairs, the servants' quarters are just like grimly expressionist. Looks like the nightmare bit from the murder sequence from the Dr. Caligari. <laughs> like a lot of zigzags and yeah. uh, bizarre lighting and a lot of just matte black as well just bits of the room you can't see yeah, yeah, yeah it's a really bleak story she is awaiting a letter from her beloved and the postman basically knows she's like anticipating it and like sort of forges a letter from him it basically ends in death and despair i'm not gonna run through all the plot mechanics and defenestration but... as well the other <laughs> is there a defenestration no, she falls a, off a, it is, is, is roof yeah. access yeah that. exactly <laughs> <laughs> um there's a great murder sequence in this film where you don't actually see the action but then the door opens and the murderer is like sort of still holding the axe yeah. above their head as their victim is like slowly falling it's a sort of tableau a visually stunning film and really psychologically bleak it's on such a high level of filmmaking to me it's a film that i could like stand against any like great horror film in terms of just like filmmaking heft and intensity great performances once again yeah i guess sort of much like the gaps between the set design there are also sort of different performance styles in this film yeah like very liminal like the gap between expressionism and like almost pantomime like you know accentuated by makeup and costume as well and then like more sort of naturalistic 
I guess there are limits to the screen naturalism in this period, but you know what I mean? It's a weird film. Social realism or whatever. Yeah, but with like a nightmare veneer. Yeah, like the Joker. (laughs) Karl Meyer, who is buried not too far from here, and I guess lived around here as well. Died in exile. Yeah. He had a crazy year in 1921. He also worked on The Haunted Castle. And I guess he's most famous working on the scenario and the script for like The Last Laugh and Sunrise. But I think also it's important to note that he devised a lot of sort of camera directions and stuff in his screenplays and stuff. Screenplays here, we're not talking about writing dialogue. Mm. I mean, there's one intertitle in the film we're about to talk about, which he wrote, Shattered or Sherban, a film about like a track walker, I think is, you know, it's a guy that works for the railway, lives with his wife and daughter played by the director Lupi Pick's wife Edith Posca and a inspector like comes and stays with them and again like disrupts this dynamic as you said earlier it's like set in like the snowy mountains yeah but it collides that like I mean this is way more verite or like neorealist almost well certainly more so than Backstairs which is like frankly expressionistic if you, on a visual level but they're both like psychologically oppressive films again this this is just it's called shattered the central visual metaphor in the film is like broken glass and it again culminates in just destruction and despair but there's one intertitle in it i am a murderer <laughs> and it's like right at the end <laughs> so it's really not about writing dialogue. dialogue it's about writing visual yeah verbally describing shots in like long paragraphs yeah, or whatever. which brings developments in cinematography you know i feel like we're sort of leaning in sort of towards a sort of mank appraisal of <laughs> <laughs> of, of um, yeah but i think he's you know really really a central figure here. okay so if you talk about that like famous quote from max reinhardt about how like in the Kammerspiel theater if someone lifts a finger everyone's going to see it and it's going to make a huge impact yeah because it's so intimate max reinhardt basically had loads of theaters from like really like classical big ones so like the Kammerspiel is like the you know intimate is the word to like describe it. Like, yeah it's like yeah maybe less but in this you know it's the cinema doing something that you can't really do unless you live in a city or whatever mm. but you're so in this it's like the hateful eight or something. It's exactly. Oh like my eight. god, that's a great. Yeah, it's a great analogy. <laughs> I bring that film up on this podcast all the time. Even though <laughs> I don't. I'm not like rewatching the hateful eight all the do time. Do you want? Do you want to say it's like stagecoach and we can edit it? <laughs> no, it's more. It's more like that. You know, because it's like it's so cold out there. Like you know. That's it. That's it. <laughs> the with thing the, with the it? tensions between the thing is a bit of yeah. analog or whatever. You know, yeah, but it's like human or too human. You know. <laughs> it's. It's a remarkable film. There was meant to have been like a flash of colour in it. It's That's a, right, a red, a red where, bit, right? Um, again, at the end, the character is holding a lantern and it's meant to like glow red and it would have been yeah. like super striking. As it is, both these films, Hintertrept and Sherban, survive digitally at least in like ropey copies. They're all from dupes and stuff like that. They're not like these Czech films that we get to talk about in a bit i know man i know i'm salivating have you ever seen yeah <laughs> i got to watch sherban on a train recently which, which i really enjoyed um but the ending of that film there's two like social questions i have about this film because it's just like 
they just have a spare room in their house and they just get told by like the company like oh yeah you've got some you're gonna have someone like living with you for the next like month or something like that or like you don't know how long that's so bizarre their house is like the station station house house, or whatever there is an interesting class question with the camishville film or camishville in general because it's sort of you read at least that it's meant to represent like sort of the sort of lower class strata right like rather than like super bourgeois interiors but then we're going to talk about i think we'll probably talk about it next murnell's again scripted by Carl Meyer, The Haunted Castle, which again, because it's set in one location with like a limited cast, it's called a Camishville film, but they're like in a hunting lodge and like they are yeah. like... Oh, that's so... Yeah, that's such a good point, man. So... Because you're very aware of like in The Last Laugh, for example, it's all about like losing your job mm. or like your relation with your work or whatever. I feel like Last Laugh's different because like that's like after hyperinflation. Sure. And like this is before, but I think there were definitely a lot of class anxieties in this period and especially in relation to the middle class. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to this... see that in the other films we're going to be talking about today and over the next like five years. Right. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> stay, stay tuned. I love that the last se- sequence of this film though or whatever where it's like you see the class alienation it's oh, great man. you know yeah they like bundles and but that's actually quite they don't like, even care like yeah <laughs> want to know about that's it. like in backstairs the gap between the like servant quarters and the like real life and you know i'm doing <laughs> but that's the uh, stuff you could only like... see in in a film you couldn't see on a stage you know i guess that's the point of backstairs Two remarkable films, though. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I've done Chauvin justice because I, I was just so. Both times I've watched it, I've just been absolutely glued to the screen. The thing is, I don't want to give it. It's so sequential. I think it's set over five days, right? And um, there are inter, there are actually intertitles saying like the evening of the second day or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Just to demarcate, but a truly rich film. I don't want to give away like the specific what happens to the characters because like it pays off and in. 66 minutes what i will say though that is i said there's like bait you know the most bait bit of symbolism is like the shattered glass or whatever but there are other bits like um there's like a scarecrow Mm. that like blows in the garden and something you can see through the window in the backdrop and stuff like that you know there's a lot of cool imagery the train stuff is cool i wish we'd have seen this shit when i mean this is just good we'll talk about it again for trains too yeah. That's it. Or that maybe that will just be a supercar of every time we're saying we're going to talk about a train film. We're just going to go back, cut, cut it all out, and that will be trains too. We'll get Darrell to do the Darrell commentary. would like this. Darrell <laughs> would like this one because it does, in the ending, it has that like the people who are like benefiting from like using the trains for luxury, they don't care at all about what is going on with like the lives of the people who are responsible for the infrastructure of this sure. rail network through really dangerous snowy mountains. Yeah. Someone's got to walk that track and check that all the bits are working, you know. And that man is Werner Krauss, who is a Nazi. <laughs> We're now going to talk about F.W. Murnau, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, who made two kind of disappointing films in 1921, maybe. Maybe kind of interesting films. I'll tell you what, he made three films in 1921, and one made... of them is Lost. I think it's called Bajazzo. Desire. Desire. <laughs> um, Bajazzo. And that's... In that one, Conrad Veidt plays a blind dancer. That is Lost, and Barlet Pouncer sounds way more interesting than the extant films. But there are two films that we could watch on YouTube. The Haunted Castle, which I alluded to while we were discussing the Camishville films. 
and Journey into the Night. Again, both of these were written by Carl Meyer. Let's go straight to the Horny Castle, man, because I feel like the, the nature of this film, where it is like a camera spiel, but in a massive... A hunting lodge. Yeah, well, like a manor house or whatever it looks like. like yeah, but old that's that. Abbey. But it is like a resident lodge because it's yeah. like a, an aristocrat's like mansion in the woodlands where they can hunt boar or whatever. But despite the splendid location, nothing happens like visually in this film whatsoever. It's like a hundred percent dialogue, which for a silent film is kind of crazy. I've never actually seen such a talky silent film, and this is from the man who made The Last Laugh. <laughs> Yeah, and as we said, Sherban, which has one line in it, one line of dialogue, so to speak, or so not to speak. And yeah, you're right. It's extremely expositional and for me, very procedural. It's sort of a bit Agatha Christie, you know, it's about a guy who like turns up at this hunting party that's like reined in and everyone suspects him of like having killed his wife. But then, oh, was it, it's his brother. I can't even fucking Here we go. remember. Yeah. I don't. I don't care. It's like some like aristocratic like honor shit, and like over time he like clears his name. He like disguises himself as a monk, as like a priest with like a bald cap and a a cassock. <laughs> and yeah, I don't hate the genre because I love the rules of the game and I love Gosford Park or whatever. Oh, uh, but you're right. It just has no cinematographic flourishes. What I would say, it just doesn't have a wavy hunting sequence like those films. Yeah, it's because no. they're reined in, but it doesn't even really dramatise the reined-inness mm. of their experience. That's so secondary. It's like a precondition of the actual story, which is about this guy trying to clear his name, which is sort of boring. What I did like about it, aesthetically, because all, all those like aristocratic scenes are just like so boxily staged. You're just like looking at like these men. And to be fair, they're arranged in the room, you know. It's sort of like letting the space talk for itself i like the backstairs vibes like where it's the like trade entrance or whatever and it's like the back gate and that's way more expressionistic with like cool shadows and stuff it has art direction by herman Wong, the man who did the eternal production design for the cabinet dr caligari and like the passion of joan of arc and vampire the main production designer in the history of cinema really mm. if you want to like mm. talk about what he brought to the, the art but you can't really tell from this film i think because it just looks like looks like the wallace collection or something like that without oh the paintings my God, that's so true yeah. or Apsley house you've been there it's a good one but just you know it just looks like it takes place in a stately home but maybe people needed to see that but i guess this is the point though like we have expectations when we're going through these filmographies and like this is one that's like to be fair, it's in a really nice copy online on YouTube. It's a really nice restoration, Aye. but it's ironic that it's, you know, one of, I think, the lesser films. Um, <laughs> Journey into the Night, Murnau's other extant film from 1921, is... Maybe a bit more interesting, sort of anticipate sunrise. The prequel like, to the has... the Celine novel. Wait, what? The journey to the end of the night. Oh, right. also a Nazi. Um, <laughs> haven't read it. It's supposed to be really good. Yeah, journey into the night. Definitely of the two Mo now films that came out this year is the one that speaks to his filmography a bit more. I watched Sunrise quite recently. So much to get out of that film. You got um, six years to think about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so journey into the night 1921 91 minutes what's the jump off i only remember you know I'm okay it's obsessed starts, with the second half the, as soon yeah, as you meet conrad Veidt. yeah it takes a while to get there the the main premise is about this uh doctor this like ambitious doctor he's engaged to a like a young woman but then he goes to a show uh like a sort of cabaret sort of thing and the showgirl like falls for him right so he like breaks off his engagement and like hooks up with her they move to the countryside hence the sort of sunrise or well hence one aspect of the sunrise comparison because it does have that like sort of dialectical um, element to it or yeah like the city and the countryside sight silent and blindness, blindness. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah thus enters conrad Veidt with his um somnambulist shtick stumbling around walking into walls and shit you know, like I'm, people loved it though. Yeah, of obviously, course. like a, that's what they ca- came for. You he's know? amazing, and he plays a blind painter. Classic. Very impressive. <laughs> Who has his sight restored? Yeah, but then you know, it's a bit twisty. There's um, a love triangle. Well, yeah, whatever. It's again. But we're selling these films short. If we if we talk about the plots too much, you know, we've watched so many of these films that have very similar plots in like rapid succession, yeah. and we've watched twice off. A lots of love triangles. Definitely, lots of uh, age gaps as well. <laughs> but, <laughs> fucking hell, ain't it true? They're usually explored in the plot. They're not, you know, they're like an element of the yeah. relationship. I think a bit more than in a lot of these Hollywood films where you're just not encouraged to think about it so much obviously you can't help but think about it yeah for me i for me i feel like neither of the murnau films for such a legendary director neither of the films that survived from him in 1921 are especially impressive however they do point towards you know his like nascent style it's a shame that so many of his films are lost actually compared to you know some of the other well he had a whole film institute named after him and a whole restoration you know global project you see that logo all the time but still so many of his films you can't see it's a real shame but if you want to crack our eyes this and be like this was someone who was about to do this like he was going to make nosferatu the next year probably the first silent film i ever saw looking forward to talking about that soon in a year's time um so don't unsubscribe yeah (laughs) really he made classics all through the 20s before um dying in a car crash in like 31 or whatever uh yeah a career really sadly cut short he like he died before lang got to germany and they were like the same film making generation right but worth noting these films anyway like they're they have been essential part of us looking at like german filmmaking in this period when you see like there are murnau films like you have to watch them turns out they're a song deck <laughs> I'd recommend this one. I think it's still, you know, better than most films or whatever. Um, I would. <laughs> Extremely generous. I feel like it's actually, yeah, I feel like Journey in Tonight like, isn't a good film. It had, like, my friend described it as, it reminded her of, like, a porn film or something like that, with, like, the acting and stuff like that, and how, like, just weird and unnatural the, like, romantic sequences were, dialogue or no dialogue. But. Ah, check it out on YouTube. Um, <laughs> it's the better of the two Monal films. <laughs> For sure. You're still listening to Film Greys. You sure are. This is our continental edition of the 100 Years Ago series. 100 Years Ago mit Stimmung. <laughs> Great. <laughs> 
after professing that the auteur theory is not really applicable to the films we're talking about today, we're continuing with our director categorized cluster of films. These ones are associated with or directed by Fritz Lang. I love Fritz. I'm obsessed with Fritz. I love his American movies. I haven't seen Metropolis since I was a kid, but most of the other ones. I feel like we watched Frau in Mond, uh, The oh, Woman in the Moon, not so long ago. I love that. We're going to talk about Dr. Mabusa, part one, next year. <laughs> <laughs> not today, I'm afraid. Oh, God. <laughs> um, no, but he does actually have a banger, which is why we saved it for last. Well, we do have a couple of films to talk about. One, he didn't direct, uh, The Indian Tomb. Directed by Joe May, again, one of these like sort of producer, director, um, pioneers of early German cinema. I think Joe May made his first film in like 1909 or something like that. <laughs> the Indian Tomb is a two-parter uh, based on a novel by Theo von Arbu, uh, who co-wrote the script with Lang, with him directing it in mind. Joe May ended up directing it, so I was like Conrad Veidt, you know, Bernard Goethe, you know, all the favourites. <laughs> You, I, I only actually, I must Ooh, admit. Goebbels is favourite. Yeah, I, I must admit, I only watched clips of this one. Well, because my copy I, fucked up after an hour anyway. Okay. But, I mean, this is an adventure film, basically. A sort of colonial... Yeah. it's If you like The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser, or The Mummy starring Tom Cruise. from I, I haven't seen that film. The one with, like, Russell Crowe or whatever. Right. But I imagine it's quite a lot like this. This film has a lot of, like... Sorry, that's just my boiler. This film has a zombie or like a, a mummified person. I don't know what the right sort of like nomenclature is actually in this specific instance. <laughs> and it has like a big floating head sequence, like something out of like Flash Gordon or mm. The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, I guess. But it felt more like uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space to me or something like that. Mm. Titillating screen thrills. It felt like it was the most normal film that we watched for this thing, I think. Or a film that felt the most like it could be made today. In the same way that um, the film we discussed last time on the series, Latlantide, again, a sort of colonial adventure film, you know, feels all too viable today. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's like escapism on screen, right? It's, it contrasts a lot with the sort of gloomy expressionism, uh, the sort of bleak, like tragic aspects of the Kamishbill films we discussed. You know, it's just like cheap furls, basically. Sure. If you compare it to that Nibelungen film that we watched all five hours of in your uni over two weeks, we're not crazy. We're not about to start some sort of large film club or something <laughs> like that. Um, but if you compare it to that, which is obviously so much more, I guess, esoteric or like folky mm. as opposed to being like explicitly colonial or whatever. I guess this is the stuff that like Krakauer loves to talk about or whatever, because what is that actually saying about like Germany? It could do both to such a fetishized extent or whatever. But yeah, the Indian tomb, it's no destiny. It's no four around the women either. Yeah, for we should briefly treat four around women. This is a film Von Harbu and Lang made before Destiny. So Lang Lang murdered his first wife, supposedly, right? Or like uh, the jury's the jury's out on it. No, I re- I read into the story because you alluded to it on a previous episode, and you know, salacious. It it is salacious. Basically, they posed it as a suicide. Yeah. After it was when they were making Harbu this film, and Lang were like found together by yeah. his first wife. She allegedly just basically went upstairs and shot herself in the chest. 
Carl Freund, I think it was. Oh, no, it was like one of the cinematographers. It might have been like Fritz Arno Wagner. Yeah. Um, like basically like disowned him afterwards. Or, But I don't know. I don't think that's actually true because I think they worked together afterwards. But anyway, yeah, that's us. But For Around a Woman, it's an interesting film. Again, it's like a very like contemporary, urbane drama. A very convoluted film. Extremely like lots of actors playing dual characters. Dual roles, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, I guess it's sort of a farce, but, you know, it's sort of serious, like, you know, the cops roll in at the end, mm-hmm. sort of promising young woman. That old Shakespearean ending. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's fair to say it's a minor film in the Lang filmography. Certainly, especially from this year. Let's just move on to Destiny, I think, which is an astonishing film by any standard. As a 1921 film, it's probably the standout. Sure. It's the one that the BFI reissued for its 95th anniversary five years ago. And I got to see it in the cinema a few times. I'm extremely jealous. Got nationwide. The Weary Death or The Tired Death is the sort of translation of the German title. Death having a pint, I call it. Yeah, great. Um, it's about a young woman in a sort of, I don't know, like a 19th century sort of Germany, a sort of folksy pre-modern Germany, trying to win back the life of her fiance from a personified death, a grim reaper, much like in Victor Hoistrom's Phantom Carriage. He gives her three opportunities to do it, which takes us to Persia, Venice and China in these three vignettes in which uh, the lovers... They all play dual roles. They're the same actors. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's Lil Dagover from um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari again. Um, the art directors of each of these episodes were the like main guys involved in The, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari again. Um, Herman Warm, who we've spoken about at length, I guess, in this episode, did the Persian, like the sort of whirling dervish, like sort of orientalist episode. And the Venetian episodes, which uh, I think that's potentially my favourite. They all have very distinct styles. Um, Robert Hurl did the Chinese episode, which arguably features the best special effects. You've got the elephant. There's so much in it. You've got, like, basic... That that episode's about, like, uh, the lovers are, like, the assistants of an old magician uh mickey rooney and breakfast at tiffany's style but he's like you know he levitates a scroll and they did that like stop motion basically um there's like a miniature they they basically go to an emperor's birthday party or something like that and like have to put on a magic show for him as the english title destiny alludes to it's about the inevitability of death in like every each of these episodes that is that is literally what it's about I have to say, I think the the fact that it does take all these like flights of fancy and take place in all these like exotic locations, much like intolerance. And what's mad about intolerance is how it like cross cuts between these stories as opposed to vignetting them off, making it like an episodic film. But also the stuff in Germany, like the production design is so incredible, like that wall and all the interiors and the room with all the candles death's like office or wherever that is yeah so the candles that you know it's a straightforward analogy of lives or whatever but it's very striking imagery that again again that's the the third um like art supervisor for a category um walter rurig you know the whole team's in in on this you know (laughs) again it's the expendables of early german expression (laughs) yeah exactly so the copy i saw in the cinema loads 
was so heavily tinted and like the tinting was going crazy so like the german bit was all in yellow and then you get like the crazy like turquoise for the persia sequence and like an insane red for like the chinese sequence and stuff like that which just looked mad and like, it was really foundational to me in terms of actually getting to see how sick silent cinema can be when you see like a really nice copy of it like or not even how sick it can be at 1.5 speed on youtube while you're listening to archers of love it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't matter it's amazing filmmaking but this film like pff, the images are so memorable you know yeah. the like, everything is going so crazy and he, this is like the earliest extant like genius lang film i think to most people i can think of a perfect scene actually which brings together like the the set design and the special effects which are like such special aspects of this film and basically death is meant to have bought like a a complex next to their village and built this huge wall right and it's like sort of a portal to the afterlife you know of course it's going to be on your own doorstep but there's like a superimposed sort of army of the dead of just like all classes genders you know just like walking through the wall and you know it's an extremely striking image but it's a film full of honestly astonishing images and like a very rewarding narrative as well we've spoken about some pretty convoluted storytelling even um lang and harvey their previous film convoluted is like the first word that not comes the most to mind. elegant threads no. whereas this it's just like extremely classical it has that whole hospital bit at the end which is just so beautiful it's a perfect film you know it's like five bags of popcorn if there's anything it's a yeah remarkable <laughs> film um one thing that i think is salient about it is that it has costumes supplied by heinrich umlauf from the heinrich umlauf museum of hamburg which that was like a sort of colonial collection of like sort of oriental objects right. so and like yeah i i feel like the nibelungen is potentially the same and it's the same like costumes and like objects that would be used in i think it's called like volkerschauen or something right like. yeah, yeah and yeah. that uh, with and like or like the or human zoo yeah. is what it's called yeah. where like they'd have like African people just and exhibit them some like P.T. Barnum shit. Right. Um, but they'd also make films using these as props, like sort of actualities. It's a bit insidious, to be honest, and like a whole other world. Extremely, you know, in the 19th century, just as big a colonial force as like any other main country in Europe, even though big not country. the largest part of Yeah, they're, you know, they've got crazy museums in fucking Berlin, dude. Yeah, it's because they're that's what the yeah. First World War was all about. Yeah, exactly. But we're not here to talk about that. Honestly, Destiny is one of the three films I think I'd say, if you listen to this episode, go and watch. The Wildcat and an as-of-yet undiscussed film from Czechoslovakia. I think it's really good as a huge fan of Fritz Lang, where this is the first one that, like, Tom Gunning wrote this really sick book about Fritz Lang, which is extremely long and detailed. But he talks about every film in the same way where, like, you know, every film has a tiresome death or has, like, either that or a time bomb is how Krakauer talks about Lang as well. It's about destiny, right? It's about that inescapable fate, which is, I guess, why Krakauer found it so convenient to talk about that with, like, the what everything is leading up to. Despite the fact that I think Lang's film is quite resistant to political interpretation, I think, for the most part. Not Metropolis, obviously, even though everyone loves, but, like, Metropolis is, like, a four-quadrant, like, hit. 
people of every like political background really fucked with it i think or took something out of it but destiny is about i guess a far more simple straightforward premise yeah a universal premise i think and it really foregrounds the again i guess this is like some aristotle shit but it's like knowing about what's going to happen at the end from like the first frame of the film right it's how about sick how it is to watch there. people try and resist yeah. that yeah or Exactly. Exactly. And that's, exactly. That's something we come across again and again with all of his films, even you know, fucking Rancho Notorious or Scarlet Street. I really want to watch Rancho Notorious. It's a great movie, man. Or The Testament of Dots Mabusa. They can be really long. They can be really short, but they're all telling you the same thing. They all have the ending foregrounded. I love Fritz Lang. Yeah. Maybe not as a guy. Maybe you know he did kill his first wife for Theo von Harbu, who was a Nazi. <laughs> but great yeah cool the, movie the titan he's on mount rushmore for me yeah i mean undeniable and destiny is one of his best films honestly if you're listening to this just pause the episode and go and watch destiny right now there's such good copies out there as well yeah yeah out. i would say actually that there are numerous good copies mm. which is interesting because usually there'll be a good copy and then a shit copy or shit copies whereas with this like there are ones you were speaking about the tinting earlier i saw different tinting on nice restorations so just go and type destiny 1921 into youtube and enjoy thank us later you're still listening to film grays at this point we've spoken at length about german feature films from 1921 and i think well we have a few other national industries to talk about before this episode ends but i think it's definitely worth talking about some of these short films experimental films that were being produced in germany in 1921 i think there are sort of two distinct branches to talk about first we've got um lottie reiniger we spoke about her in the introduction and that's pretty much you know uh, the Flying Coffer is what it's called, a nine-minute um, sort of paper animation. Uh, I, I guess it's a sort of a folktale of some sort. Uh, dude, I've I've never felt more, like, waved off by a film. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on in this. I mean, the Rus- like the German with, like, the Russian subtitles didn't help. Yeah. But, like, the fact that it's all made by her hand is so amazing, right? But I had no idea what this was. this film was trying to depict. It, it was so it was this is the most abstract one to me more than the lickspie hook i think yeah there's a pleasure in the paper craft but the actual thrust of the story yeah similarly was lost on me i think because yeah of the um but it was cool um the other branch of filmmaking in this period then of experimental mm. short filmmaking this period absolute film is what it's called and when we spoke we were speaking about the french like attempts to like you know find a way of like really escaping the stage to like make something truly filmic and these are like graphic artists and painters um sort of posters you know moving into film trying to harness the potentialities of cinematography to make a new form of visual expression and these are the earliest abstract films the first music videos ever yeah i mean films they, without actors yeah they look like screensavers we've got um <laughs> the walter, screensavers walter rutman's great band Nick name spiel opus one it's like light play and which is in color sort of yeah it is but that's the point like it's short and it's not like film stock you know it's like painted so i guess it still needs to be reproduced but the ones we see are probably from the fuck knows how they digitize that to be honest um 
And Hans Richter's Rhythmus 21. Hans Richter um, was a sort of... These are like sort of Dada guys, yeah. like experimental artists. He worked closely with Viking Egling, a Scandinavian artist who moved to Germany. And, you know, they wrote like manifestos and shit together. Like very... Well, you need to have the manifesto. Very impenetrable Otherwise it stuff. Doesn't. Otherwise, you're just pissing about. Otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd like to see some of Viking Egerling's work, though. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, as I said, all this stuff is just like screensavers. It's interesting, though, <laughs> in that, that, you know, it's experimental. And, like, yeah. it, it truly was groundbreaking at the time. This stuff was funded and supported by Ufa, the, like, behemoth of German filmmaking in the period. So, like, they were obviously trying to cultivate they had to pitch it quite hard, though, because I guess that's part of the manifesto stuff, is they had to like write these really long applications to receive the yeah. thing. The Rhythmus 21. I don't think we're going to come back for Rhythmus 22 or 23. Or, <laughs> no. Um, it's, it's a bunch. It's like moving squares or whatever. It's like trippy videos or whatever. All the comments on YouTube are like, can anyone recommend a good song to listen to with this which is ironic because like they would have been played with like very specific music yeah. and the Probably actual pretty... rhythms of the the image itself is are meant to be very exactly. di dialectical in and of themselves you know it's very intellectual stuff darling like you know and there was mad music being made at this time like pierre boulet and stuff like that or like schoenberg or something. yeah definitely this stuff is sort of hard to get into but it's definitely worth noting it's also the easiest to watch or it's probably yeah, sure. the, the least alienating <laughs> thank you weimar cinema for giving us animation on film <laughs> yeah sure we would have no wallace and gromit without you we, there wouldn't be there'd be no sausage party without <laughs> <laughs> Hans Richter. Walter Ruttmann, who made Berlin Symphony of a City, was a Nazi. He worked on Triumph for the Will and stuff like that. Yeah. The thing is, I feel like a lot of the people we mention, we're not going to say they were Nazis, but they might have been. So He was a Nazi. No, no, yeah. He, li he literally was. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. sorry if there are any Nazis that we missed is what I'm trying to say. We're now going to move on to Austrian filmmaking. I'm sure there were loads of films made in Austria. The filmmaker we're going to talk about made four in this year, but this is the only one that I've managed to see. Uh, the only one that's available. Is it? Yeah, I think the only surviving one. I mean, I'm sure if we went to an archive, we'd find them, but yeah. So it's... Um, Put it on YouTube like the Czech. Come on. Mihai Kurtage. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll go to the... I'll go. Michael Curtis, the Hungarian emigre director who um, was spending a bit of time in Vienna at this point before going on to America to make some of the real classics. To make The Adventures of Robin Hood and Casablanca and Mildred Pierce. <sighs> Often a very underrated filmmaker or whatever because he was seen as such a journeyman because mm. he was so good at so many things. <laughs> and he made four films that all look mad different from this year. But the one we watched, Labyrinth of Horror, was fascinating. Yeah. To start off with, why was it called Labyrinth of Horror? I literally have no idea. Well, actually, I do. There's one bit in the film where, like, the character... There's, like, a sort of flash-forward, and it's a character is yeah. describing this period in her life, and she's like, oh, you know, I went down a rabbit hole a little bit. I met the horrors. Like, I went Gwyneth Paltrow ate bread. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, obviously the title. You see the thumbnail on YouTube, and then you see the title, and you're like, 1921? This looks... Oh, you know, it looks like it's going to be a proper expressionist film, but it emerges to be a really interesting sort of internationally flavoured production. Um, Austrian filmmaking in this period, just like 
give a little bit of context. Um, the main guy was this producer and you know studio owner called Alexander um, Sasha Kolovrat. Mm-hmm. Um, he started this company called Sasha Film. He was a count who was born in America um, and then like moved back to Vienna and just like you know started a film company because it was cool. Like films are cool, right? I think they are. He did as well, um, and he had loads of money, so he started making films. So when these like Eastern European directors specifically from Hungary, like Alexander Korda and um, Michael Curtis, like, passed through Austria, like, as, like, the fash were, like, sort of, or the right wing were gaining power in 1919. And they were, like, making these very internationally flavoured films, like, for an international market. And this film has those, like, sort of adventure serial vibes, touches of expressionism, some funny bits. Like, I think it's a, an extremely entertaining film. There was one bit that tickled us both particularly, I think. Sure. I guess to respond to the fact that these films were, you know, the influence were, was very reflexive at this stage. They weren't just remaking continental films and putting you mm. know, famous actors in them or whatever. But they were watching each other's films. All you needed to do was make some different intertitles. Oh, so the one we watched actually had like French intertitles, yeah, which true. goes to show the international thing. But say what the thing, guys. <laughs> um, about an hour into this film, the star. What's her name again? Mm, Lucy Dorraine. Lucy Dorraine enters into a Mary Pickford lookalike contest. No, no, it's not even that. She just like goes to. She's at, She's like, a... like escaped like some mad situation that she's in. She like goes to the countryside stumbles upon this like fair sort of thing yeah. and then people are just like said uh <laughs> Marie Pickford uh, yeah. yeah 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 <laughs> like uh set incroyable <laughs> like yeah. 12 or something like that yeah, yeah 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 but that's just such an interesting thing you know to place it firmly in the contemporary and the fact that the first half of this film all, all takes place in like this crazy outdoor factory like proper industrial landscape the likes of which you know you don't often see Framed brilliantly as well with like, you know, the Often seen out of the window and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These like sort of jagged silhouettes. Um, just to go back to the sort of adventure um, or like sort of serial or like crime sort of mm. plot aspect of it. Um, Lucy Doreen, it's actually Michael Curtis's wife and she was in all four of the films he mm. made that year. Um, her character's brother... Um, is like a criminal and there's a great sequence where like he inadvertently blows up a train this is an unbelievable sequence um again uh, that's one for the trains to mega mix but yeah like really brilliant there's so much going on in this rip roaring <laughs> entertainment um and like a big shootout at the end where like one of the characters at the beginning of like a, a industrial chimney pff, it's mad it's super entertaining. Every like scenario or every scene, they do so much with like the setting, and it, it was so modern. I think that's definitely the term, especially using like the countryside as a sort of juxtapositional sort of device there. So like when you're back, then you go along the road from the countryside, and then you're in like an industrial estate, you know, for the climax. That's a quintessentially modern phenomenon definitely this film captures in a really jokes way i think of all the 1921 films i've seen so far there's a few i haven't seen for america yet Mm. but bar like the chaplin films or whatever this felt like the one that really took place in 1921 and was like trying to like put on screen and like make cinematic not even jokes but just like turn what the world looked like into cinema in the way that a cartoon would or something like that definitely although one of the czech films we're about to talk about also does that in a big way. 
Labyrinth of Horror by Michael Curtiz. We're going to move to the Czech Republic, Czechia, uh, the left half of Czechoslovakia. Let's talk about two films by Jan S. Kolar, who is an awesome filmmaker. Even more than like the Murnau's or like any of the sort of pairings we've had. I can't believe these two films are made by the same person in the same year. Yeah, this is a supreme double bill. They actually made another film that year called The Crossbow to Brook, but not available. But yeah, you're right in saying these are two remarkably different films. And they're beautifully presented on YouTube by the Czech National Film Archive or the Czech Film Institute. Yeah. Who have an amazing channel and honestly just the best... You know, it's, they were a dream to watch or whatever. They look so good for, like, YouTube films. Let's talk about The Poison Light first, because that's the film which draws comparisons with Labyrinth, Labyrinth. of Horror yeah. as, like, a very international-feeling production mm. um, with, you know, gunfights, intrigue with, like, industrialists and magicians and, you know, PIs and... Ugh. Blurring the lines between all of those three or whatever. Again, made me think of Elon Musk or whatever, you know. It jumps off with this. I guess it's quite episodic, but it's all, you know, it's not the biggest cast of characters. This inventor who's, like, been able to turn the night into day or whatever. And as a result, all the flowers are turning black and stuff because he's, you know, he's gone too... He's, he's been too hubristic with his, like, yeah. profit margins or whatever. Yeah. With his role of being an inventor but then it sort of takes a turn and becomes like way more like a gang of criminals yeah. are trying to steal the technology and they're and, like i can't know, this has got to be my last job man yeah <laughs> yeah uh Jan Ashkola is one of the um like lackeys in it he's got such a great face man yeah he looks like um patrick fischler you know the guy from who has the dream yeah. in Mulholland drive or whatever is he in um prisoners yeah, that's him. Um, so Carol Lamatch, they were sort of a filmmaking partnership, also with Annie Ondra, with whom uh, Carol Lamatch was in a relationship at the time. Um, I think they actually started a film production company in the early 30s. He stars as like the sort of, I guess like the main good guy, the guy we sort of like follow as he like uncovers the plot. He's also sort of like hapless, but it's interesting to see him appear in it because um, he like co-directs and like co-writes this one. And they're spinning such a good yarn for us, you know. Yeah. It's brilliant just like, storytelling. Yeah, it's pure entertainment. <laughs> and as you said, like a brilliant copy. But we literally get brilliant like car, is the word. car chases, shootouts. Yeah, lots of intrigue. This has got to be one of the first car chases in cinema, you would imagine. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Why not? And there's also horses <laughs> about, you know. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's brilliant. I think... Arrival from the Darkness, the other film they made that year, for me, has as much, if not more, charm as a film sort of inspired by Expressionism or even the films of Paul Wegener, like The Golem, um, which, uh, I guess, anticipate it. Definitely. And it's very, you know, it's set in like a... But it's, it's, it's literally, it's the definition of, like, gothic horror. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, reawakening long-dead ancestors yeah. in your castle basement. They shot this half in Berlin Studios and half on location in, like, decrepit castle ruins in the Czech the Republic. Black castle. Which are just, like, extremely striking visually. Especially if you've, if you've watched 10 UFA films which have, like, splendid sets and they do so much with the sets and then you're, like, you're definitely in an actual castle. But they still shoot it in a pretty, you know, the light pouring in. It looks like Nosferatu or whatever. But even more than that, 
the deep staging is like on another level in this film. You've got characters like so far away from the camera in the room, like everything, yeah. every single shot. Mad lighting. Honestly, like this is a film that goes to show the, again, I keep saying internationalism and I'm not talking about the international. Solidarity. Like I'm just talking about like, you know, aesthetics and business trends or whatever. But you can see the influence of, yeah, it's exactly a globalism. You can see the influence of like Karl Lamach, like going, doing his work experience in Germany, learning about cameras, bringing some back and you know, presumably watching some jokes films there and then just like making these absolute bangers back home to try and get the studio system going. I The zombie is really scary as well, man. The character design. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why the golem comes to mind because it's very like, sort of like fake, it looks like it's like a metallic face paint almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it looks like a mummy or something with that like weird texture. The poison light I meant to say is interesting because it also features... This guy, Josef Malostransky. By that point, it was like a sort of older guy. These are all guys in there, like they're like our age or younger. This is a guy like the elder statesman. He's like in the 1890s. He's like acting in the first Czech films. They're like bringing it all together and like trying to make mm. like a very Czech flavored product with like recognizable people in it, but with this like international vibe. Successful, I think. This is the genesis of the Czech film industry. Or, or. But um, then I guess when they were, when, uh, you know, Nemec or whatever was watching this, Jiri Menzel or whatever, was watching this to be like, this is everything we have to destroy. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But I think it's straight away, I, I don't know. There, there are interesting materials actually for Arrival from the Darkness about the restoration. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting, um, I think it's a Czech TV show called Arsenal about old films and like restoring them and stuff. Um, oh, what's her name? Jeanne Pomo, I think her name is, yeah. the French um, restorer who worked on putting this film together again. And, you know, they talk about how much, you know, the Czechs actually really value their, like, cinematic heritage in a way that, like, lots of other countries don't. Um, which makes sense because it seems like everything they make is sick. Um, it's, again, I don't, so scatterbrained because there's so much to say about these films. So I really actually loved these you're, Czech ones. You're doing great. But... Lupu Pitt, who directed... Made Shattered. Shattered. His Rex Film Company produced Arrival from the Darkness, which, again, just, like, brings to bear this, you know, interconnectedness between these um, sort of artistic and filmic initiatives in 1921. Well, they have more in common by being, like, urban dwellers in Bavaria or whatever, despite not living in the same... Yeah, town. sure. <laughs> Um, you know who the cinematographer for these films is? Otto Heller, who uh, shot Peeping Tom. That's right, yeah. And he did, yeah, he did like loads of them. the Ipcrest file. Yeah, the Ipcrest file and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lady Killers. Just goes to show. It's yeah. just, and, you know, it was a proper, like, film troupe. I feel like we could revisit these because they're so interesting. But again, That's always I, the thing when people try and talk about, like, People on Sunday or a lot of these films. It's like, how do you even approach it? Because there's, like five like legendary artists all working on the mise-en-scene and like devising the theory behind how you make even a quite straightforward film like that yeah. <sighs> i love these films go and check them out as you said they're on youtube search for them we'll let's put, bring up we'll those views let's the get them trending man <laughs> <laughs> um arrival from the darkness makes up the holy triumvirate of uh, of 1921 films for me with the that's your other five bagger and destiny yeah that's it. Arrival from the darkness. 
I think quite a lot of these for me would be just like I'd choose to watch these over most other films. I've had such a good time doing this episode, I gotta say. Even compared to the other nineteen twenty one surveys, like we had to do such a small area of land as its own yeah. thing because it, you wouldn't believe I guess because it's significant and important to the history of film, both to the nations respectively and also like in a global sense. Yeah. They're so original with it. But also, they're just such sick films. Like, if you like films, these films have so much to offer. I'm sad this is the last film we're going to talk about. Ah, but it's a good one to end on, isn't it? We're talking about a Slovak film, Janosik, based on a folk hero from Slovakia, from the 19th century. It's that sort of, like, Afrim vibes, like, it feels super medieval, but, like, it's probably way nearer to World War One than you yeah. think it is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> He's like a Robin Hood figure. That's it. But this is also totally John Ford Western. Yeah. It's a frame story as well, so it starts off with, like, a few, like, modern sort of, you know, like, city dwellers just, like, having an amble through the countryside. They meet, like, a shepherd, mm. and he starts telling them the story of Janoszek. It features... Beautiful um, field photography, by the way, rivaling Johan for, like, landscape. Yeah. Like, nice use of landscapes. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it was made by a bunch of, like, Slovak emigres in the United States that, like thought up this project and then like went over to Slovakia to make Chicago, it. Right? Yeah. And they saw this cinema thing like cracking off. Yeah. So we're going to make the first Slovakian film, feature film. Yeah. And it's great. As I said, Aferim by Radajud mm-hmm. is um, one of the main reference points in my mind while I was watching this, just because you know that feudal just, it's not like a sort of romantic vision of the past. You know that like the feudal overlord is like, gonna exact justice yeah you know he's too powerful because that's just how these stories end luckily no one gets castrated in this film at least like <laughs> yeah. on screen but he gets hanged by his rib or Butters. like some yeah, like random so extremely specific pre-modern punishment anyway for a silent film uh, when we spoke about um what was it el dorado it was like an extremely musical silent film sure but this one definitely had my favourite dance sequence out of any silent film from 1921 I've seen. Sure, man. Uh, like, people would, like, just, as you said, in the mountains, jamming and, Making like, camp. doing the Saltarello or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. But a very entertaining, like, sort of historical parable, sort of gritty. You can watch it in Portuguese. Is it Portuguese intertitles? Yeah, really annoying, hard-coded. But, like, there's one bit at the end where it, like, literally takes up the whole screen. But what can you do? Like, that's literally it's the only so thing It's so cool to in. see still. Yeah. I really... This was one of the first ones I watched from 1921, just because I was like, oh, what? Like, you know, Slovakian Western, like, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah it's an intriguing prospect. They didn't really manage to kickstart the Slovak film industry off the back of this film though well no it looks like everyone involved in this film is pretty much the only film they made however the guy that plays Janoszek and like one of the amblers his in, parallel in character story. yeah it's like his great 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 grandson or whatever <laughs> but it's like you are yeah uh, this guy Theodore Pishtek he's you know part of like a sort of acting dynasty actually in Slovakia and he's one of the main characters in Arrival from the Darkness as well and yeah a really sort of domineering almost like uh he sort of looks like the guy that played Dr. Movies 
Klein Rogger. Klein Rogger, yeah. But yeah, otherwise it was sort of flash in the pan. And that's the story for so many production companies in this period where they're like trying to get in on the action, especially like trying to cultivate like national film industries mm. as well as like private enterprise, like business, like enterprises, you know, whatever. Would I say though, despite the fact that this is born out of just like rampant, you know, money making it's probably the most leftist, in a traditional sense, film that we talked about in this episode today. Felt a lot like Peter Lou or something like yes, that. With, exactly. With the, uh, you know, dining table, grotesque, rich people sequences compared yeah. to the virtuous band of uh, robbers who we lo- are heroes. Absolutely. It's, it's a hero. It's, that's, it's very he is straightforward. the hero. Sorry, it's completely, you're, you're right, it's completely unambiguous. He is the hero of the story and the landowner is the bad guy mm. you know the feudal overlord is the bad guy and you know the the thumbnail on youtube is like him with his like 12 mustache looking like the guy out of um the round wacky racing oh right yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dick dastardly yeah sure yeah. sure sure <laughs> but great movie maybe that's why um thor period new waves from eastern europe were like trying to they feel quite anti-Marxist or whatever, you know, because this filmmaking tradition is what, like the noble bandit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, that's a whole other thing, you know. I think it is a sort of boldly like it's it's not like a communist ideological film, though. No, no, you no. know, it's like a basic like sort of it's like a parable, liberal, like. like sort of parable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, it's a great film. It's fantastic. And a cool soundtrack. I feel like we haven't really spoken about the scores that much. Okay. Arrival from the Darkness had a smashing score, didn't it? It sounded like uh, Rain Dogs or something like that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like Tom Waitsy. Did you say they had a bit about the soundtrack in that Arsenal documentary about Arrival from the Darkness? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where the guy's just like you know, trying to get the vibe right. And it's cool. It has loads of like, electric guitar. And, like, yeah. Um, nice but fuzz. also like part of that film's like set like during the 30 years war in the 17th century sort of flashback stuff or like a very like alchemical time and it has like a very appropriate soundtrack yeah oh, yeah of course he was an alchemist yeah, yeah. he's a magician or whatever. <laughs> no he was the assistant of a magician or whatever and the magician's like you must be my total you know you must you got to commit yourself <laughs> to me for the rest of your life and he yeah genius Sound is such an important part, like sort of mediating how we experience these films. I think whether it's like the fucked up double speed orchestral score, how mad does piano sound? Just like solo piano sound on double speed or whatever. I don't want to get all Paul McCartney with this. Real mad. Nice. But some of these films have such good soundtracks that I had to watch them at normal speed. (laughs) Arrival from Darkness being one of them, I assume. And Janoshik with its cool, like folky. Eastern European dance music. We should play some of that on Will's show. I reckon we will. And maybe some of the souls on the road music as well. Good film. Yeah, so that was... I think we're probably going to wrap it up there. Part two of our 1921 series. Let's do it. Thanks so much for listening. This has been, yeah, 100 years ago. We're still going to be 100 years ago in a couple of episodes time. Yeah, thanks a lot for listening. Um, I'm, Yeah, we may even split it further. It may be a four-episode series. It remains to be seen. But thanks for listening. If you enjoy Film Grace, please give us a rating, whatever. And if you're around on Sunday, <laughs> the Sunday after this episode comes out, I've willed it into existence now, I've said it. Join us for the first large film club screening. We're going to be watching Peter Watkins's La Commune, which is on YouTube. And we're going to do it. It's on a Sunday afternoon. We're all going to do it together. And then we never had to do it again. No, I'm actually so gassed for this. I haven't been this excited to watch any film. 
Um, just when cinemas open, just when the sun comes out, we're all going to sit inside on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, last day of the Premier League. Yeah. Get involved. We're going to be watching <laughs> Peter Watkins laugh on me. To be fair, it's one of my favourite films. Sam's going to do a lecture. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But, um, yeah, please do join us for that. It's going to be fun. Thanks for listening. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Lots of love. Cheers. Ich habe ein Gefühl von 21 wird ein gutes Jahr. Besonders wenn du und ich sehen sie es zusammen. Du denkst also 21 wird ein gutes Jahr. Es könnte gut für mich und sie sein, aber du und sie ist nein, niemals. Ich hatte keinen Grund zu optimistisch sein. Aber irgendwie, wenn du Lock lässt, ich kann schlechtem Wetter trotzen. <lacht>